I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello, and welcome to another episode of All Things Policy. Today. We are here for a very interesting discussion with an even interesting guest. We have Liv Nordhawk, who serves as a co-lead of the Digital Public Goods Alliance. This conversation will be hosted by my colleague Arjun and I, Ritul Gaur. It's sort of a homecoming for us because we are both former Takshashila colleagues. Now we're currently at the Ministry of Electronics and IT, serving as U Chicago Fellows. So jumping straight to it, Liv, I want to put you in the spot and ask you some big questions. What is this Digital Public Goods Alliance? What is a DPG, a digital public good? And how does one identify a digital public good? So take us through this broad picture of digital public goods. What do you do there? And what is the Digital Public Goods Alliance? No, thank you so much for that question. And, and let me start by uh, saying that I'm so honored to be featured on this podcast on behalf of the Digital Public Goods Alliance. So to start off with your first question, the Digital Public Goods Alliance is a multi-stakeholder initiative that stems out of the high-level panel on digital cooperation that the UN Secretary General established in 2018 and which delivered its recommendation in the form of report in June 2019. So the Digital Public Goods Alliance stems from a recommendation in that high-level panel report. <laughs> it's recommendation 1B, so it's one of the main recommendations. 1A and 1B were main recommendations there. And that recommendation really focused on what kind of mechanisms could be established and um, scaled to accelerate international digital cooperation, particularly with the aims of accelerating attainment of the Sustainable Development Goals. And as part of those discussions in this high-level panel, there was a strong alignment that, and now I'm coming to what digital public goods are, <laughs> that um, open source digital solutions, meaning open source software, open content, open data, open AI models, and open standards of relevance to the sustainable development goals. And that also adhere to certain minimum standards related to, for instance, privacy and user security could have huge potential to enhance international digital cooperation. For instance, by allowing uh, stakeholders to adopt and adapt existing technologies to meet their own needs rather than having to start from scratch. So that's really kind of the core underpinning of the Digital Public Goods Alliance, this idea that there is a potential to build on top of and further adapt what others have built, and also that there is a potential to share what you have built yourself. And the core founders of, uh, of the Digital Public Goods Alliance are um, the Norwegian Agency for Norway through the Norwegian Agency for Development Cooperation and Sierra Leone through the Directorate of Science, Technology of Innovation and UNICEF. And then iSpirit, which is, of course, very familiar to you as Think and Do Tank, high importance in India and which has highly been highly involved in also the development of the India stack. So uh, those are the four co-founders and the alliance has since uh, expanded to include more than 25 members 
members, including a number of UN entities, a number of countries, and also private sector stakeholders like GitHub and ThoughtWorks, and also philanthropic funders like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and also the Rockefeller Foundation. So this is the background for the Digital Public Goods Alliance and then also what digital public goods are. Uh, thank you so much, Liv. I really want to double click on a lot of things here. So yeah. I'm going <laughs> to first sort of pick on when we talk about a digital public good, was there or is there a digital private good? And like, what is the conception behind the digital public good? So could you sort of throw some light on these two broad phenomenons? Yes. And I think it's important to look at, at what we mean by public here. So the public good in the digital public goods definition, it really stems from the economics term, uh, a public good, which means non-rivalrous and non-excludable. So it really comes from that adoptability and adaptability rather than public in the sense of government or public sector. And I think that's important because public can indeed have multiple meanings. And here we're talking about the economics definition of, of public goods. So when you say, is there a, can there be a private good? Yes, there can be private sector stakeholders that are developing and sharing digital public goods, for instance. But a core premise of the digital public goods standard, so there is a standard for digital public goods, which is stewarded by the Digital Public Goods Alliance Secretariat. And the core premise is the platform independence. And this idea that a digital public good should be something that you can freely adopt and that doesn't create any forms of lock-ins, including to an proprietary stakeholder. So, but yes, in accordance with the definition of digital public good, it can indeed be developed by a private sector stakeholder. So if that answers the question. So it's different from something that is exclusively made available by a public sector stakeholder or by the government. That's really interesting, Liv. Anyways, great to have you on the show. So I also had a couple of questions, especially with regard to the whole conceptualization of digital public goods right so one of the things i wanted to know was how do dpgs or what we call a digital public goods evolve so how are they created per se are they created as digital solutions to tackle a single problem or are they created for public service delivery so what kind of intention is there when we kind of digital public good and at the end of the day I mean, you mentioned the fact that even private sector is involved in the technology aspect of it and creating these digital solutions itself. But I also want to know, at the end of the day, who owns these DPGs? Like, is there a concrete owner, as in, is the government involved in the ownership of the DPG itself? Or is it a public-private partnership? Or can it be both? So how is the journey of a DPG from the technology aspect till the you know implementation aspect itself? And you can do that with an example or if you can just let us know how we how it is done. Just one more thing, Liv. I'm going to double the trouble with one more thing that in this conception, at what point does a digital solution per se become a digital public good and who identifies it and who certifies it to be that? No, thank you for asking a wonderful set of, of complex questions. <laughs> I will try to delineate and also exemplify. And thanks, they're excellent questions and there's so many nuances in them. So first of all, I'm coming at this maybe from a bit of a side, side angle here. There is a particular, I would say, particularly strong focus now within the Digital Public Goods Alliance, the membership, and 
sort of a certain, a very important trend and subdomain domain within digital public goods that, that we're seeing a lot of attention around. And that is digital public goods that has the potential for deployment as part of countries' digital public infrastructure. And I'm mentioning it because I think that also touches upon a lot of the dimensions of the questions asked here. And what do we mean by digital public infrastructure? And here I will point to the India stack, as you will know very well, and the core uh, foundational three layers of the India stack. So Aadhaar as the foundational digital identity system, UPI for payments, and now DEPA for uh, data empowerment and protection, so for secure data exchange. So these are all examples of interoperable layers of digital public infrastructure. And there is a particularly strong momentum now across countries, across all income levels and all geographies to build out stronger and more resilient and more inclusive digital public infrastructure as a response to COVID, as a response to recurrent crisis and instability. This is a trend all over. And I think COVID really, really demonstrated to the world the need to be able to have digital uh, public and private service delivery and a lot of innovation in how those happen. And particularly related to digital public infrastructure, there are lots of different models for how the public and private sector can work together. And I would say there is an increasing drive in countries for models that protect and maintain national digital sovereignty more, meaning that the government and and public sector is somehow in the driving seats, at least, of making strategic decisions and having capabilities and also the opportunity to strategically evolve these foundations and build on top of them. So this goes back to the original question in the sense of, you know, what models are there for public and private partnership? My impression is that in many countries, the trend is now at least going for less outsourcing of the strategic, like the planning and sort of the architecting of these infrastructures. At least there is a strong and increasing understanding among governments that this needs to be led by governments. But There can be many forms of involvement of the private sector in many roles, and a lot can be outsourced. So, and how does digital public goods then play a role in this? And again, I will use an example from India to illustrate this. Of course, as you will know very well, Aadhaar, which is, you know, a very mature and proven system now for digital identity, is not in itself open source, but there is, in a way, an open source derivative that exists, which is MOSIP, the Modular Open Source Identity Platform, which has been built by many of the same people that were originally involved in building Aadhaar, and which has also been evolved based and developed based on a lot of the learnings from the first years of Aadhaar, and which is operated by IIIT Bangalore. And as so this goes to the who <laughs> question about who owns or runs DPGs. This is an example where it's an academic institution in India that is maintaining and evolving a digital public good, MOSIP. Whereas the origin story from MOSIP, from Aadhaar and the, the inspiration. And MOSIP is then a digital public good that is available for other countries to and adapt to build out their own digital identity systems. The implementation or one of them that has come the furthest is the Philippines, which is implementing its own digital identity system, Philsys, based on MOSIP, based on an adopting and adapting uh, MOSIP in the Philippines. And so Philsys is then the digital identity system and a part of the digital public infrastructure in the Philippines. And to my understanding, the Philippines has deployed, um, there is a large systems integrators contract 
which has been established, uh, including through a tender process, where I also think there has been advice from the World Bank in the process and so on. So there's definitely private sector involvement, but it's the Philippine Statistics Authority that is sort of overall governing the process and in the driver's seat, so to speak, of that journey. So I'm hoping MOSI at least is, is one exemplify what this can mean. And of course, the scalability, because there are something like 10 countries that are now in various stages of either piloting or assessing MOSIP or actually already in process of uh, larger pilots or even full-scale implementations of MOSIP. So to me, it's a tremendously inspiring example of how a digital public good that has been derived based on the infrastructure of one country is now being deployed in multiple other countries and helping them build out uh, stronger digital foundations in their own countries. I'll pause there for any follow-up questions, and I hope I somehow touched upon <laughs> the multiple <laughs> complex questions you gave me. No, no, you did. Thank you so much. I think, although you did miss one, but I'm going to get back to you after a break. So we're going to take a short break here before we catch Liv for some more interesting questions. All right, welcome back. So I was very keen on listening to you, Liv, so, and I could identify that what you've missed. So it was my question, perhaps, that in this journey of a digital public good becoming a digital solution, becoming a digital public good, I wanted to understand that who identifies it and who certifies it to be called a DPG. And what is the process of this identification? And no, thank you for that question. And sorry about having missed it in the first place. So anyone can nominate a digital public good, but there are certain questions in the process that can only be answered by someone who can actually speak to the solution. And that is particularly around how certain safeguards have been built into the digital solution to avoid harm by design and also around uh, making sure that, uh, for instance, brand ownership or some that ownership is documented and so on. But there is a nominations process that is fully accessible on the website of the Digital Public Goods Alliance. So there's a nomination form and there is a digital public goods standard. And this standard is in reality an operationalization of the definition of digital public goods that comes from the UN Secretary General himself. So this definition was given by him in his roadmap for digital cooperation, which was published in 2020, and which was in many ways his response to the report for the high-level panel on digital cooperation that I mentioned earlier, which came in 2019. The UN Secretary General came one year later with his roadmap and his take on how he would follow up those recommendations. And that included presenting a more precise definition of digital public goods. So what we have done in the Secretariat is that we have worked with multiple experts uh, across different domains, such as open data and uh, open source software, open content, and so on, to uh, evolve an operational standard, operationalized into nine criteria, with also with some sub-criteria, that allows an assessment process of any digital solution against these criteria. And they broadly, um, you can think of them as having three broad buckets in a way. One of them is relevance to the sustainable development goals, which is obviously, um, it's a fairly broad tent, but it's uh, still a subset of, uh, of open source in a way where there has been some intention 
of relevance to one or more of the sustainable development goals by design or through implementation, a solution has been proven highly relevant. So that is the first category. The second is around the openness of the solution, which goes both for the licensing, of course, but also in terms of documentation and uh, what I refer to as independence other platforms. So this is then also assessed. And, you know, if you look at it, it really has to do with what I said earlier about this opportunity for someone else to adopt and adapt this solution to meet their own needs. Because to be frank, there is a lot of open washing out there in the sense that something is presented as an open digital solution, but in reality, you can't access the code. You can't access sufficient documentation. So in reality, it's impossible to actually adopt and adapt it. The third part of the standard relates to do no harm by design. And that looks at, uh, for instance, how the specific, how should I say, risk parameters that would be particularly relevant to that solution has been taken into account by design. So um, you can, for instance, imagine that if we're talking about digital identity systems, there are, for instance, principles such as you know, minimizing what kind of data you're actually aiming to correct if the aim is only to verify someone's identity, the principles of data minimization, for instance. So, and, uh, and also um, what kind of safeguards uh, have been um, implemented by design related to user security, if it's, if it's some si- sort of digital solution that is interacting directly with end users. So that's the third category in the way of criteria within the DPG standard. So it is the Secretariat of the Digital Public Goods Alliance that is actually assessing nominated digital solutions against the standard. And these nominations are, um, once they have been, a solution has been screened and found to meet the standard, it is then made available on the Digital Public Goods Registry, which is also available on the website of the Digital Public Goods Alliance. And there are multiple other stakeholders that are exporting directly from this registry and pulling it into their own platforms and using it to to inform their own catalogs of various kinds. So that is the process described relatively simply. That's very interesting. I think I want to move away more from the technology bit and the creation of the DPG itself to the implementation side, right? So I think we've talked quite a bit about how we create DPGs who are involved and everything like that. Now, moving to the implementation side of the digital public good or the digital solution itself, I want to know from you, what is it that like countries or entities have faced or problems, challenges? These are the things which have been faced during the implementation of the digital public good itself. And especially during the deployment, the scaling, the funding. So, I get that that the technology part of it is the main crux of it, right? So you create this all-encompassing digital solution which tackles a particular problem. But uh, during the implementation of the digital public good itself, how is it that countries have tackled whatever challenges they faced? And in your opinion, what can be done to improve and streamline this implementation of a digital public good also? No, thank you for that question. I And I will actually start by disagreeing with you in the sense that I don't think the technology is the crux or the majority of <laughs> the solution <laughs> that is needed in the sense that for successful implementation, the, the technology is often only a relatively small part. It really matters what kind of, uh, and, and of course it varies between 
what kind of, are we talking about some kind of uh, application for, I don't know, learning a particular, like for literacy learning or for numeracy learning? One thing is to implement that. But if we're talking about, for instance, a national scale identity system or payment platforms, to take one example, there are so many other challenges that go way beyond the technical. So, and it starts from the um, very early, the whole kind of enabling environment and what kind of regulatory reforms may be needed to, to even adopt the technology. So for instance, around data privacy laws, for instance, or other um, types of enabling regulatory frameworks that the countries would need. And then I would say a major challenge in many countries is procurement particularly if we look at uh, countries where you know there is somehow official development assistance financing involved and you know multiple agencies may be assisting um, that country in digital implementation processes procurement systems are they're often very complicated in the first place and it's very hard to do procurement of digital systems because you only find out what you need in the process of actually piloting and deploying it in terms of you will constantly need to adopt and adapt the system. And it's often very hard to take that into account in the procurement process and what you procure for. That's actually one of the reasons that digital public goods can make a majorly positive difference in the sense that these are open source solutions, meaning that you can at least freely adopt and adapt them compared to proprietary solutions where you can often come into a situation where you will need to negotiate new changes that you had not conceived of in the original procurement process, for instance. And, and you can end up with what we term vendor lock-in, where you have ended up with a much more rigid system or a system that actually doesn't meet your needs. But even for procuring open source systems uh, or digital public goods, they typically then challenge how procurements traditionally happen because you don't procure the actual solution. You procure services related to implementing and adapting that solution. And sometimes, to give very simple examples, if you as a country know that you're planning to implement MOSIP, many countries will, or some countries, and there are examples of this, will have procurement laws that do not allow you to mention a particular solution in your procurement process because that is seen as breaching equal treatment premises. But if you do know that you are planning to implement MOSIP as an example, and what you want is to procure integration services that require that someone's actually, <laughs> that the company actually knows MOSIP and you're not allowed to mention the name of MOSIP. This is an example of how, you know, other processes can, uh, that are not technical can be very important. And this specific example I gave now is actually from the Philippines that had to make an amendment to their existing procurement regulations in order to implement MOSIP. And then there is the capabilities question. And it's the question about having the capability to actually architect and plan you know, the, the systems and combination of systems that will meet your needs. This will be a challenge both for proprietary and for open solutions to envisage your needs and to actually then specify them and to have the right services associated with implementing them. And then there can be physical infrastructure needed. So, and, and I'm sure you will know this very well from India. So 
you know, the kind of biometric devices you will be using if you're implementing a digital identity system and making sure that, you know, where internet connectivity is needed, that actually exists, which is also a major challenge in, in many countries and so on. So there are a number of factors. And of course, then there is the issue of trust. And, you know, if a population trusts a given digital solution and, you know, how do you onboard the population to a national scale solution? And um, how do you uh, also uh, get, for instance, the Ministry of Finance to approve paying for the implementation or to actually finance the implementation cost and so on? So um, those are just some examples of of, um, challenges. And we're very much trying to mobilize through partners, uh, you know, financing and technical assistance and support that can follow countries through the entire journey from early assessment and to full-scale implementation. And there are stakeholders like the World Bank, uh, UNDP, uh, and, and other UN entities that are doing tremendously important work here in combination with those that are making available digital public goods like IIITB, as I mentioned, and also in combination with then uh, funders and so on, to just give some examples. So it's really a, a whole value chain and the technology component is only a part of it. It's a critical part, but it's definitely not the only and, and maybe even the main part. Uh, thanks, Liv. Thank you so much for actually mapping this landscape out. Somehow I just have a lot of questions, but I'm still going to keep it short and ask you a simple question first, which will sort of build on to my other questions that I'm going to subsequently ask. Could you, and this is, I think, which we've struggled with a lot, is the terminologies that are thrown around. I think this, somebody calls it digital public good, somebody calls it a public digital platform, somebody calls it a digital public infrastructure. So uh, what do you think about, like, what are your thoughts on this, that which is the right terminology to use for what? Uh, to me... Two term, two, the two terms are very clear that a DPG is a solution, but if it is tailored according to a country's needs and then sort of implemented at scale, it becomes a digital public infrastructure, which is which is also at the UNDP, DPG for DPI. So can you elaborate your take on this? Yeah, and, and I appreciate the question. It's I agree there are many terms out there and, and um, they have different origins and, and stories sometimes. I do think the term digital public goods, as it has a definition also by the UN Secretary General and and so on, is somewhat straightforward here. Of course, everyone won't agree, but I think at least there you have the UN Secretary General as as an authority of the definition and so on. I think with digital public infrastructure, it's more, it's interesting. And I hear many different terms used where I think they are describing often the same foundational layers. So For instance, the World Bank has earlier at least used the concept of uh, foundational digital stacks. And I've also heard, you know, public digital platforms. Sometimes you hear the word more gob stacks is another one. (laughs) But very often they are referring to these cross-sectorally enabling layers that when they are implemented as a totality form countries, then I would say digital public infrastructure and, you know, would consist of typically digital identity, often in combination with some kind of civil registration and vital statistics system to enable targeting when you want to, for instance, uh, reach particularly vulnerable groups and so on, or uh, only females uh, or female heads of households and so on. And then you have payment platforms and uh, systems for secure data exchange. And 
I actually see a lot of alignment that these are recognized by many very foundational components that are important for enabling both public and private service delivery and innovation and a flourishing vendor ecosystem also on top. But they, you know, the different terms used are for the same (laughs) components. They can be public digital platforms, digital public infrastructure, uh, digital stacks, gov stacks, and so on. And as long as we manage to exemplify what we're talking about. I actually do see a lot of increasing alignment internationally now that this is a critical opportunity and something that all countries are are really working on at the same time, I would say. So uh, I am optimistic, but yes, there is a lot of terminology out there, but I'm at least hoping that, as as you are also saying, digital public use are indeed the solutions. And I would... (laughs) Add a complication by saying that there are examples of digital public goods that would not qualify for implementation as one of these foundational layers in digital public infrastructure. So, for instance, you know, there are digital public goods on the registry that are, for instance, climate and weather data and forecasting uh, models that are, uh, um, as an example, or uh, other um, types of uh, software, for instance, for um, girls' menstruation uh, apps, or, uh, you know, they are more the app layer and not systems that uh, would be deployed at as part of countries' digital public infrastructure, but they are still digital public goods because of their adoptability and adaptability, according to the definition <laughs> of digital public goods. But there's a subset of digital public goods that are highly relevant for adoption by countries as part of their digital public infrastructure, if that was helpful. Yes, yes. And for, for anyone for, for who's, this is, this is not clear, you can visit DPGA website and then sort of learn from there. I'm going to, like, so before I, I let Arjun take the last question, I'll, I'll ask you a sort of multi-layered question, uh, which is on, I think, and you spoke about it as well, that COVID particularly became the time where we learned about the importance of countries that had digital public goods slash digital public infrastructure, they were able to do better. They could identify their citizens. They could deliver that kind of help, be it monetary, non-monetary. So I think they came into focus. And now in the post-COVID sort of the, the way we are rebuilding things, it becomes even more important to keep a note of these solutions and then take it forward. So as we see a sort of renewed energy in the world in this space, every every major uh, multilateral institution to philanthropic funders to big governments are now taking a note of it. What kind of promises do you see that it holds for new challenges that are in front of us? It could be climate, it could be low middle income countries. So anything, do, do you think, does it have any utility for the developed world? I know Estonia has extensively used and has become like an island of sort of digital public goods infrastructure in Europe. So that's one aspect of it. So what do you see the promise of this this tech going forward? And two, because of the sensitivity of the information that this digital public solution provides and deals with, what do you think are the risks associated with it? Because with identification and, and sort of intimate identification, like biometrics, like fingerprints, etc. I know I get that, the fact that there is no harm principle inbuilt into it, but this these kind of solutions, particularly when they're open, they will also move to authoritarian state, which has the potential to cause more harm than good. So what are the sort of risks that you take into account? So 
So yeah, these are my last sort of two questions. No, no, thank you. And um, <laughs> I wouldn't call them quick and simple questions. <laughs> but no, I um, th- the first one is maybe I can answer that one quickly. I see a tremendous potential and I see a tremendous potential. I, I heard you mention Estonia and I think this is a potential that exists across all countries, regardless of uh, income levels. And I think all countries will need to continuously evolve their digital public infrastructure to also address new challenges. And and as you were rightly saying now, you mentioned climate, for instance. And I think there's a lot of the the same thinking. And you will hear that, you know, there are <laughs> there are also um references sometimes to functional digital public infrastructure or sectoral digital public infrastructure, where the idea is to take, you know, the same layered approach and the same approach um, as what we have discussed now with, you know, ID payments, secure data exchange, and also within specific sectors or or domains to really make sure that you think about what are the horizontal or cross-enabling components maybe within that sector or problem set and what are the things that can build on top of it so that you're particularly meticulous about, you know, interoperability, for instance, among the most foundational layers. Um, and, and I think this mindset, this infrastructural way of thinking is something that can really also be applied to new types of domains like um, uh, reducing climate change emissions. And also to think about, you can imagine global stacks even that are, you know, really deployed by multiple types of stakeholders related to addressing different types of climate related changes both or challenges both on the mitigation side like you know reducing climate gas emissions but also on the adaptation side i see tremendous potential and i think this you know the scalability of digital because that's really what it boils down to when we talk about the reason why there's a concept called digital public goods in a sense is that digital is inherently scalable with you know assumptions about some levels of connectivity and at least, you know, hotspots of connectivity, there really is potential for digital solutions to be used by multiple stakeholders at the same time without one stakeholder's use deterring the other stakeholder's use. So you can think completely differently. You know, a physical road in Sweden could not be used at the same time in in Norway, but a digital health system can right? So there is something here that really enables cooperation and enables cost sharing and enables collaboration also to improve and and build a solution. So I will just like the first question, I I will really want to end on an optimistic note in the sense that I see tremendous potential. And also there's also therefore a tremendous interest, I think, this form of, of collaboration. But then to the harm risk. Yes, I think there are several nuances to that question. There is definitely potential for these types, particularly, as you were saying, these most foundational solutions are maybe the ones that also can do most harm. So for instance, digital digital identity systems can also be used for surveillance, for oppression, for undermining and for um, undermining human rights and for, you know, either preventing someone from actually getting access to critical services or for, you know, targeting them for some kind of abuse or uh, surveillance. So, and there is only a small component of that in a sense that can be addressed by design. Most of the risks occur during implementation. And as you were alluding to, anyone can adopt an open source solution. So that kind of is the nature in the reusability 
uh, is also that you cannot guarantee that it's not used by someone in a way that you haven't, that it wasn't designed for. But that being said, I would say that at least there can be transparency about how the solution was originally designed, a starting point. And it is not as if these kind of harms are not happening within proprietary systems and, and systems where there is no transparency around how they have been designed. And, you know, uh, you were referring to authoritarian countries also using, you also have systems designed by authoritarian countries and being shared by authoritarian countries with other countries where there's absolutely no scrutiny and transparency about how they have been built. So I would also say that the alternative is happening at scale in the sense that we're not in a situation then that if there weren't any digital public goods, nothing would be happening. I would rather say it's the other way around. So I do think that digital public goods can provide tremendously important choice and provide state-of-the-art digital solutions where at least there are safeguards by design and where there is much more opportunity than to have an informed discussion about then how they are being implemented, at least based on how they were designed, which anyone can look into. But there are no guarantees. And it is also not something we feel as the Digital Public Goods Alliance Secretariat that we can guarantee. But we do think we're providing alternatives that at least gives a better chance of both transparency and also of, of best practice by design. So, um, but we are, we're not naive in the sense that there are risks associated with it and accountability and an informed discourse and also regulatory frameworks, having the right regulations in place uh, and right institutions and so on are um, examples of how components that can help minimize risks, um, but you can't eliminate them. Well, that's interesting. And that was a wonderful answer to that question itself. I would like to end on a note, which is, uh, I mean, India specific. Uh, we are we are sitting here in India and we have seen the fruits of uh, digital public infrastructure take shape. And as you have said, how India stack has developed and how it has reached uh, so many million Indians. And I think Ritul mentioned this before of how digital public goods, digital public infrastructure has now been the talk of the town in multilateral institutions, at several engagement groups diplomatically. Since India has the G20 presidency this year, what do you see in your opinion as uh, the opportunity for the concept of digital public infrastructure to come up at the G20 level? And we've seen that the Prime Minister has spoken about this specific thing at uh, different summits and he has uh, showed his intent to kind of push this initiative forward at the diplomatic level and at the G20 level. So in your opinion, what do you think can be the opportunity for this field? this year? I see a tremendous opportunity. And I mean, India is the world's largest democracy as a country that has had, I would say, a not sufficiently appreciated digital transformation journey. And when I say not sufficiently appreciated, I mean, there is still not enough stakeholders and, and other countries that are aware of the significance of what has happened in India. And, and I mean, you can look at the financial inclusion impact, for instance, of uh, the combination of Aadhaar and UPI and, and just this, you know, access to uh, financing and, and bank services for the previous unbanked, unbanked, for instance, particularly for women as a group that was particularly marginalized earlier. So, you know, there is such the story of, of what India has achieved is so inspiring and in so short time. And, you know, the fact that India did in, I think it's, you know, 
something like 10 years what other countries would have on a normal trajectory spent more than 40 years to achieve is very inspiring. There is one part of that story that has a particular relevance for digital public goods. And this is something that I have actually had the privilege of, of, of also hearing from Nanda Nilekani about, uh, because I've heard him also provide speeches on the thinking when uh, Aadhaar was built. And still have, and, and you know, India has tremendous tech talent and tech capacity. And so when Aadhaar was built, there was this opportunity, and in a way there was an opportunity to start with a blank slate because there wasn't any kind of legacy system in place that had to be built around. And, you know, there was this ability then to actually adopt and adapt a lot of existing open source components. And of course, then to build and and combine that with both existing uh, technologies and also to build new. But basically, there was an opportunity to leverage open source because there was capacity to do it. And there was an opportunity to design something free of legacy and with full sovereignty. And I think this word sovereignty is is really key. And it's something that I think is is a key part of the India stack story. And, And the learning is how can you build your digital public infrastructure in a way that safeguards your national sovereignty? This is something I think there's tremendous potential for India to share as part of the G20 presidency and something that many countries are really, really looking to guidance for Uh, Because, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there are these concerns about long-term lock-ins and so on that uh, that many countries have experienced and that have really limited their own sovereignty. So, you know, what can be learned from India about having this architectural mindset about adopting and adapting existing open source components that can be used? And this is where digital public goods, I believe, can you know play a tremendously helpful role then in enabling countries to kind of do what India has done earlier and to really enable them to shorten their own learning and adoption curve. And this is something that we at the Digital Public Goods Alliance are really hoping to work very closely with India on. And one of the reasons why we're so happy about the positioning of digital public infrastructure uh, at the core of the G20 presidency. Thank you. Rough. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Liv. I think we've exhausted all your time. But this has been a really enriching and fruitful discussion. I've learned a lot and I think our listeners are going to appreciate it. If you have any recommendations to read, feel free to share. Arjun, do you have any last word? I think this was excellent. Yeah, no, thank you so much, Liv. I think it was an excellent conversation. And uh, yes, uh, though we have interacted with you before, it's such a wonderful thing to just learn so much from you. And I think, yeah, as Ritul said, I hope all our listeners have learned from this entire conversation and yeah hope to see you all in the next episode thank you so much thank you so much for having me if you liked our show don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network you can tune into them on the IVM podcast app ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts you can also follow IVM on social media the handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.